Take your Bibles and join me in Matthew 24 as we get started. Matthew 24 as we get started. Let's do a little bit of Thanksgiving quiz as we get our, our minds thinking for a moment. Thanksgiving is recognized holiday only in the United States. True or false? What do you think? Some say false, some say true. Okay, there is at least one other country now that's observing it, it's Canada. Otherwise, it is not a worldwide holiday. What was the name of the famous rock where the pilgrims traditionally that they landed? Yeah, yeah, that's what the, the tradition says. Three main dishes eaten by the pilgrims the very first Thanksgiving. Turkey, ham, pumpkin pie, potatoes, tomatoes, turkey, venison, cod, pumpkin, fish, ham, pumpkin, pig stomach, sauerkraut, beans. Which ones? Number three? Venison cotton, you are absolutely right. You are smart. Here we go. Uh, which president was the first one to declare Thanksgiving as a national holiday in perpetuity? The idea of year after year. Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Reagan, Obama. What did you say, Reagan? It's not Reagan. Lincoln. Lincoln is the first one that said, here's, it's going to be a national observance from year after year. Uh, balloon, that's the longest. This was prior to this year. The balloon, that was the longest in Macy's Parade. Charlie Brown, Superman, Bullwinkle, Spider-Man, Kermit. It's not Bullwinkle. Spider-Man, wrong. Charlie Brown, wrong. Superman, wrong. Anybody want to make another guess? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's what it was. Okay. What food did the pilgrims have, but they were afraid to eat because they thought it was poisonous? Potatoes, tomatoes, cranberries, coconut, squash, turkey, ham, or scrapple? Okay. I know which one is poisonous today. Okay. But what do you think it is? It was cranberries. They were afraid of the cranberries. Right. Absolutely. What store was the first one to hold a Thanksgiving Day parade? Macy's, Kimball's, JCPenney, Boscoff's, Walmart, Ollie's. What do you think? Do you know what city? Was it New York? Yeah, it was Philadelphia. It was Gimbel's in Philly, 1920, was the first one to do it. And speaking of those parades, the very first one that Macy's did in 1924 was something novel and new in their parade. Used large balloons, had mostly police and firefighters, used live animals, distributed gifts, had no Santa. What do you think? It wasn't number four. Number two is not right either. Number five is not right. You, you got it narrowed down. Number one is not right. It's number three. There you go. It's the only one left. They emptied the zoos for the parade one year, and then the next year they did the large balloon characters. I wonder why. Okay. Here we go. Come on, remote. So what state consumes the most turkeys? California, Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, Alaska, Minnesota. Pennsylvania is not right. New York is not right. California is absolutely right. Okay, lots of turkeys. How long did the first American Thanksgiving last? One day, two days, three days, five days, one week, or two weeks? One week is not right. Okay. Three days is right. That's what it should be in today, right? Three days of eating and cooking. What's that? 
Three days off work, we'll go with that one. Okay, three days off work, we should celebrate. Okay, prior to Lincoln's Thanksgiving Day where he was declared to be Thanksgiving every year, every year before that, the presidents had to declare we're gonna do a Thanksgiving. There was one president who refused to declare a Thanksgiving Day declaration at all during his presidency because it sounded too much like a day of prayer. Which one? Don't say Obama, he was not prior to Lincoln. It was Jefferson. Jefferson, because of separation of church and state, he would not declare the, a national day of thanksgiving during his presidency. The only one that wouldn't do that. We are in Matthew chapter 24. Let me back up to what we're talking about. We're talking about end times. We're talking about tribulation period. And we were talking about 70 weeks of, of prophecy. Somebody asked me a fabulous question last week. They, when we were talking about these things, you have, if you weren't familiar with some of it, I would, you, it's on notes, you can go back and see it. But in the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, this is one person's presentation of it. There is, this, as far as the times, there is the first gap, the 70 weeks, followed by 62 weeks, or 62, 70 years. You can see the dating there. And some of the prophecies that were given. And then there's a gap of time that we ended up talking about in many prophecies. There's an innate gap of time in a number of prophecies about Christ's first coming and second coming. Then the final seven years, what we call the Great Tribulation, is the completion of those 490 years. Now, in that 490 years, somebody asked me, a, like I said, a tremendous question last week. They said, okay, the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the beginning of the countdown of the 490 years. What year was that? We pointed out that there are several decrees that are men mentioned in the Bible that fit. There is also another decree that is mentioned in the Bible, given in 445, by, and it's recorded in the book of Nehemiah, and it was the time to go back and rebuild the walls. But you remember before that there was other decrees to go back and rebuild different sections and rebuild the city. And so some have said, okay, that 445. There was a writer whose name is Sir Robert Anderson that in the early part of last century, he had written a book called The Coming Prince. He had done calculations that became extremely popular during a period of time and in the Bible movement in the early 1900s in particular, especially when Schofield and others were writing books and commentaries and uh, got inserted in a number of Bibles, he had concluded that the date for the decree of Nehemiah was March 14th, 445 B.C. Was That was the decree. Taking, and he was using some historical data that he had, taking that decree and saying 483 years times 360 days. 360 days are lunar years, um, and the idea of the prophetic years that are used in the book of Revelation the seven years, 1260 days. And so taking that, uh, that 483 times 360, you end up with 173,000 days. And through his calculations, he concluded that after 483 years, it brings us to April 6th, 32 AD. And so his surmising was, and it became a very, uh, a very common and popular postulation that this was the date for the triumphal entry. In fact, some of you will have this in your footnotes in your Bible. And somebody asked, why didn't I present that date, which is a very valid question, um, is why I, I just didn't put it in. Since his time, 
since his study and the popularizing of that theory, in the mid-1900s there was archaeological evidences that came up and concluded very, very clearly that Christ had to be born between 4 and 6 B.C., 6 and 4, because Herod the Great had died in 4 B.C., and Herod the Great had done the... Uh, the decree killed the children up to two years of age. And so with modern, more modern findings that in archaeological studies and dating, what happens is that if you take 4 BC and then you add the dates, then what happens is Jesus had to die of 33 years old, had to die prior to 30 AD in that regard, which throws off um, uh, the datings that we had here by Anderson because he's saying 32 A.D. And so a lot of the modern scholars, the Life of Christ individuals that, that are writing are saying that that one doesn't quite fit. That's why I didn't present it. it uh, the teacher I sat under did his doctoral studies and timings in the Bible and he had a whole list of other reasons and his point is that the Anderson was off by two years and so the others. Here's the bottom line of it. Okay, and, and you know, I, I, whatever one of these decrees it is, okay, it really doesn't make any difference to us in this regard to say, okay, which one, they all, they fit in those regards, and so you can have a lot of debate and discussion, and I'm of the ilk. Now, you may not be of the ilk. I'm of the ilk. Why take the time to argue over something that we don't know conclusively? And so uh, it's just not of, in my mindset to do that. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out which one of those decrees it was. And God will clarify it. But that's why that there's some who do not, and more, more recent writings, if you go and do more recent research, more recent writings are not uh, using Armstrong, or uh, Ander, what's his name again? Anderson. They're not using Sir Robert Anderson's time graph anymore because of what's been founded since that time. Again, we may get to heaven and find out that that's, you know, maybe it's right. Okay. But the point is that those decrees end up, they fill, they come out to a point, then Christ comes, then he dies, then the city is destroyed, and then sometime after that is the second coming. So what we're talking about, and I want to expand from there today, is this. In Matthew chapter 24, if we look at Matthew 24, Jesus in this text makes this comment. He says, watch therefore, in verse 42, you know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good man of the house, etc., had known the watch of the thief would come, he would have watched. He goes on and makes a comment a second time. He says, therefore be also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Let me clarify, make sure that we're all on the same page, that if you go up a few verses... And it starts talking, verse 40, two in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding, verse 41, one shall be taken, the other left. And watch therefore, you know not the hour that the Lord comes. This is not a rapture passage. This is the passage, if you look in context, he's talking about taking away to judgment via the illustration of uh, Noah's ark, how some were taken away to judgment. This is when Christ comes the second time. No man knows the hour or the date that he's going to be coming. That's his point, is you've got to be watching. And if you remember the context, he isn't even talking rapture here. He hasn't even talked about that because it's a mystery that will be revealed later on in 1 Thessalonians. But at this point, this is second coming if you go all the way back to verse 27, 28, 29, 30, etc., etc. But he does state in this text, okay, we cannot know the hour of the day, okay, and so those living in the tribulation, they cannot know, neither can we know the hour of the day of his rapture coming. But he does make a comment in verse 32. Learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Does anybody have a different rendering in verse 34 for this, this generation shall not pass? Does anybody have a different wording? Does everybody have generation? Oh, that's interesting. Um, the word genos that's used there means generation and or it can be translated nation. Okay, this nation, referring that the Jewish nation shall not pass. Or the, the other observation is that those who are in that time period living during that, they will not be destroyed, the Jews living at that point, the meaning is the same thing, that they won't be destroyed before, you know, when, when they see all the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines, things like that, that there's not even going to be an extended period of time before the Lord comes back. We know it's seven years. And so his point is, in this text, is we cannot know the day or the hour, but he says we can know the season. We can know by the leaves on the figs. If we see certain signs, get an idea that that time is approaching. My point is this. Okay, I don't know, you don't know, when the Lord is coming back. We don't know when the tribulation is coming. But can we take a few of the tidbits of prophecies that specifically say in the latter days, in the latter days, in the latter days, in the latter days, and make some observations that God has given us some seasonal indications that we're getting really close. And that way, watch what happens when we look at it this way. There is passages like in Daniel chapter 12, in the time of the end, he says there shall be an explosion of knowledge, knowledge shall be increased. The idea that it's going to be expanded in an inordinate pattern like never before in history. So I call it that. I call it an explosion of knowledge is an indication we are in that final season. Do we live in a time period where every year there's an explosion, expansion of knowledge like never before in human history? Yeah, yeah. We, we visited uh, this past summer. We had the opportunity during a vacation to go to the Detroit, and we visited the Ford Museum. Have anybody ever been there? Any of you been there? It is phenomenal. It is absolutely most one of those most phenomenal museums I've ever seen. Didn't even know it existed. They, are, they deal with all of the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's circa of the Industrial Revolution and all the different inventions and it's an amazing place and it's like, wow, did society take this leap of a jump in just technology in the late 1800s, early 1900s and then what leap have we taken in the last half of the 19th century with science? And then what leap have we taken since 2000 when the world was going to be destroyed, right? And everything was going to go bonkers. Every year, medicine, just surgery, the leaps and bounds that are being, an explosion of knowledge is an indication we're in, the, we're in that season towards the end. Doesn't mean, I'm not saying that the Lord has to come today, I'm just saying here's an, one of the indicators that we're getting into that season. And you put all 13 together, it's amazing. Here's another one. There's going to be an increase in evil in society. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that in the latter days that perilous times shall come, men shall be lovers of them, their, themselves, pleasure, boasters, um, they, and it goes on and talks about a variety of things that men will be like. In fact, if you want to look at that text, 1 Timothy 3, it reminds me of reading newspapers, editorials of today, when he's describing what the world is going to be like and making comment. 
that he describes in the sense of the depravity of society. In the, in the text, he goes on, he makes this comment, and I'm going to get there, I know I will, if I get the right pages to unstick. He says, men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying. Does that describe where we're at today morality-wise? Is good being called evil and evil being called, he said that's going to increase in the latter days. Now again, let's be honest with it. Has that been pointed out that, you know, that successive generations at different periods of time have gone down morally? That's true. That's true. But it seems like this one is just even more broad, uh, broad spectrum now, even universally. Let's do this one. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that in the latter days that there's going to be a giving over to an apostasy. Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving, for every creature is good. The apostasy here that he's talking about is there's going to be a growing change in philosophical approaches. Marriage isn't going to be a prominent role anymore. In fact, some will be denying that they should be given, uh, should be married. The idea of uh, sacerdotalism, the idea of, of monasticism, the idea that we don't want to marry is the possibility that some have pointed out. The idea of commanding to abstain from meats, the idea that in the latter days there's going to be some churches or religions is what's postulated here that are pointing out that people shouldn't marry those who are in the clergy and certain foods are forbidden. Others would say, well, maybe it's a broader spectrum of society that people are saying don't eat meat anymore because animals and people are kindred and we don't want to, you know, vegetarianism will be highly promoted. The, the point is that there's going to be these philosophies are going to become more and more pre predominant and Timothy as well as Paul or Paul writing to Timothy as well as, well as the Thessalonians says there's going to be a shift in orthodox religion. There's going to be a real movement away from truth, away from conservatism and going more towards a modernism, a liberalism, a shifting away and he mentions it twice, a falling away where people will claim to have a spiritual mind Mindset, but they're going to start denying more and more that which was commonly accepted. Uh, let's put it out this way. Did, in the Western world, do you think as a whole was the Bible looked at as the Word of God in, for several hundreds of years? Yes, it was. It was by most every church. The Word of God, it was inspired by God. In the middle of the 1900s, there was a major shift theologically. Humanism slash liberalism dominated the scene in many churches and many denominations have come to the point that they no longer believe the Bible is inspired by God. There is a movement even within Christianity that Jesus Christ isn't really God, that Jesus is a man or he's just an example. And those are major, major shifts away from a conservative orthodox belief. Is that what he's referring to? 
We don't know exactly what the apostasy is that he's referring to, but we're seeing more and more that even in the Christian church movement, in Christendom as a whole, there's a denial of the miraculous, there's a denial of supernatural, there's a denial of the deity of Christ, and it is a growing movement. Let's add to that something else. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he talks about in the latter days there's going to be another philosophical movement that will catch on and be propagated. This is an interesting one. If you've never marked your Bible, you may want to do that. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you jump down, and he's talking about the last days, what it's going to be like, how you can know that you're living in the last days. Peter's writing to people who are in Roman persecution. The emperors have increased and are doing some of those 10 imperial um, uh, persecutions that happened in the first 300 years, and they're after the Christians, and some of them are saying, are we in the end times? And he says, well, let me tell you, there's going to be something in the end times, and he's giving them insights, even though the persecution is bad. Here's what I want you to know. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of a creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What event is that? The flood. The flood standing in and out of the water that he's talking about and he goes on a little bit more whereby, well there's the flood, whereby the world that then was was overflowed with water it perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In the latter days he says there's going to be denial of that idea of creationism and the idea that there was a universal flood. There's going to be more of a denial and there's going to be more of this idea that says everything's can, everything continues as it was from the beginning. That everything continues as it was from the beginning is called uniformitarianism. That things, there isn't anything sudden. That things just kind of keep on going, 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 going for millions and millions and millions of years and there's no drastic change, there's no sudden um, interjection of God within creation. Things are just kind of rolling along and rolling along and rolling along and rolling along and there's no great changes. There is no flood. There is no word of God that says let there be and it, it happened instantaneously. What philosophical teaching is that that's propagated? What do we call it today? Evolutionism. Evolutionism that says that everything is just going on as it was and you know just there's there's just this flow and yes there's a deterioration because global warming things of that sort but the idea that it's just millions and millions of years. As a biblicist we would respond and say no 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 there was an instantaneous creation in the seven days, six days actually, there was then a change in the world, drastic changes in the world that were cataclysmic, that came with the flood, that explained the ice age, that explains the uh, rock layers, that explains the death of all kinds of animals, the fossils, things of that sort, that can be scientifically explained. So people look at this evidence of fossils and they have one of two conclusions. That that animal was suddenly was, was buried and over a long period of time it got buried and fossilized. Or a very sudden instance it was buried and then it fossilized in a short period of time. Same evidence, two different viewpoints. 
of how you interpret that. And so he says what's going to happen is in the latter days the popularization of evolution is going, uniformitarianism is going to take hold. If you go to most any museum, how is evolution presented? As fact, right? It's always millions of years. When did that start? And you can't say it's always been that way. Okay, it didn't start until the 1929 into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and all and go back and you can study, and I don't want to repeat the Scopes Monkey Trials and all those different things. Prior to that point, it was not taught. If we were to, if we were to visit um, museums that were done in the early 1900s, we would not hear of evolution. It wouldn't be presented that way. We would hear of creationism. We would hear of, of the idea of a cataclysmic event like the flood. It, it wasn't presented like evolution. But now evolution is taught as fact, not a theory. In fact, even me saying this for some of you are like, well, wait a minute. It's got to be because everybody thinks that way. Well, that's what he says is one of the signs of the end times is that there's going to come a point where people will just succumb to that idea because if you tell somebody long enough something, they will, we will believe it. Okay, we're, we're all, we're all, we can, we can all become liable to, liable to some type of ongoing persistent teaching and yet that teaching is not founded in Scripture. And you can explain a lot of the fossils, you can explain geological shifts, you can explain canyons, you can explain the Grand Canyon in particular. You can explain those things not by millions and millions and millions of years, but you can explain it by a creation followed by a catastrophic flood. And a lot of it makes absolute perfect sense scientifically. And so, but he's saying that in the latter days, this is going to be one of the, and by the way, why is it why is it uniformitarianism is a dangerous teaching? Why is evolutionism dangerous teaching spiritually? Yeah, you take God out of the picture. The, the bottom line is it's a very subtle way of saying that God, maybe he got it started. But who is the epitome of all creation in evolutionism? It takes man, God out and replaces him with mankind. Mankind is the highest order. Now, do we believe as well as, as biblicists, creationists, that man is the highest order of creation? Yeah, a little bit lower than the angels. But he is still lower than the angels. He is still not the epitome. God is the creator and we are answerable to a God who is very active in creation, not a God who just kind of just got the ball rolling. So it's a tremendous philosophical shift that takes God out of the picture in a very subtle fashion. Let's give you number five. Number five is this. According to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Israel, to start off that last seven years, Israel will make a treaty with Antichrist. For that last seven years to happen, therefore, Israel has to be a nation. You can't make treaties with people that are just roving without an entity. So Israel has to be, re, be, re, uh, be restored as an entity. When this was written, 
Daniel was writing at a time when there was no Israel. They did go back. They did rebuild. They did have several hundreds of years and even a period of time of decades of independence. Christ comes on the scene. The Romans are in charge. A few years later, he dies. A few years later, the Romans destroy the revolting Jews and there is no nation from 70 AD. There is, there's a Jerusalem at times. There's a village, but there is no Jewish nation. In fact, Israel, the Jews, when the Zionist movement of the 1800s starts formulating, they aren't even interested in going back to Palestine. They're looking at South America or Africa. But God in his providential wisdom said that they're supposed to be back in the land of Israel as we know it historically. They end up back in the land and eventually they become a nation and they are organized and recognized as a nation who can make treaties in 1948. Okay, and so that has happened as another one of those last, those last times events. Let me give you number six. Okay, if for there to there to be that treaty, there has to be some Western world in the Roman region. Remember the people of the prince that shall come, that destroy the city, that's Rome, that does it in 70 AD. The people, uh, the prince of that people, a descendant of that Romish empire is going to rise up and he will make that treaty with Israel that starts the last seven years. There's got to be some political entity within the ancient or in the boundaries of the old Roman empire, something that is working together. Hey, folk, in the Middle Ages, the only thing holding them cohesively was the Catholic Church, but nations were against nations, and then they were divided. Then you have in the 1700s, the 1800s, you have the, a lot of conflict in the early 1900s, and they weren't looking at universalism or globalism in any way, shape, or form, or working together. Um, and so it was only in our most recent time that there is, again, organization that is trying to get them very, very much working together in that European ancient Roman Empire domains working together as a unity. The entity that we know today is called the what? European Union that Britain and some are trying to exit out of you know, and cause upheaval because why? The interdependency has become absolutely strangling to some of the nations. The economic burden on some of those nations at the top, Britain and, and Germany in particular. That's why Britain wants out because of countries like Greece and Portugal that are just sucking the lifeblood and the finances out of the EU that they're trying to break. But the point is there is a political entity here. Nationalism and independence of a union is not the norm of this day. Well in that last times for that treaty to be signed there has to be that same mindset that there isn't independent nations but there's a cohesiveness of ten nations out of which Antichrist will rise and make that treaty with them. Number seven, the Middle East has to take center stage in world politics. In the 1500s, well let's go all the way back. Let's go back to the 700s, 800s, 900s, and 1100s. What drew attention to the Middle East? There was things that we, in, in the early 700s, 800s, 1100s, 1200s, there was something that was going on in the Middle East that drew attention and drew warriors. Crusades. The Crusades were going on, and it was all about freeing, the, having freedom there in the holy city of, uh, from the Muslim world. And so there was the Crusades. And so there was wars in those time periods. Yeah, they didn't last, and we understand the Crusades, and so... We understand some of that history. Then the Middle East was forgotten. 
It wasn't a political world stage for a number of years, through the Middle Ages and in you know, the 1700s, the 1800s. There was, there was no interest in the Middle East, per se. There was re-involvement in the Middle East in World War II, uh, World War I. There was something in the Middle East that drew attention with, the, with World War I that said, okay, well, Britain wanted in, France wanted in, and they wanted colonizing, and after World War I, they divided it into what we have today, divided up ancestral territories into these boundaries that were squared and created a forever conflict and so well, it didn't re dissolve, it resolved the forever conflict and it drew their attention and ever since that, ever since World War I, the Middle East is becoming a predominant topic of interest by other nations around the world. What is it that drew the attention? It's oil. It's oil. What did people, what happened in World War I? The mechanization of armies the need for fuel to keep the armies going. And all of a sudden there's this renewed interest. And then the renewed interest, Israel gets involved. And today, what, what is moving the money markets in major ways? OPEC and other different oil organizations, and it affects our economy. And do we have a vested interest in protecting the oil flow in the Middle East? Yes or no, economically, do we have an interest? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Because there is a dependency. Who is the, care, who is the ones right now that are be making the most inroads in the last 10 years into the Middle East, trying to establish treaties, and trying to keep oil open to their country? It's north of Israel. Russia has become a major player in the Middle East. Why? Because of the needs that they have economically. And they're putting the United States on the outs. That basically the United States has one friend in the Middle East, and Russia has multiple friends in the Middle East. United States, one friend in the Middle East? Israel, okay. The other nations that are lying with Russia more and more politically? All the Arab states that are around them. It's an amazing story to just keep on watching. But you and I who are biblicists that are studying Scripture say, it's not so... Uh, it's not so Surprising, the Bible would indicate for all the world battles to be engaged, for world interest, for treaties to be signed, there's going to be a renewed interest in the Middle East. Outside of oil, what is there? Sand? Okay. It's, it's, you know, so there's, there's deposits there that have grown. Now, in the Crusades, what were they motivated by? Religious fervor or, or making money, the kings, you know, by getting land and territories. But today, there is no religious fervor. It's an economic fervor that draws attention to the Middle East. Let me give you number eight. For this to happen, for the last treaty, Israel has to feel threatened by her neighbors. She has to feel like she needs help from the outside and to have that treaty with Antichrist that she will sign according to Daniel chapter 29, verse 24, 26, 20, uh, 26 through 20, 24 through 27. So Israel has to feel threatened. Are we living in a time period where Israel is threatened? Yes, yes. Are there people trying to destroy Israel? Yes, all the time. Have they had multiple wars? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, and again, we've reminded you about this. Let me remind you again, if you're visiting, just to do a history lesson. When George Bush Sr. was, the vice, was president and they did the first Gulf War, 
it was the first time that it ever happened in Israel's history that Israel did not retaliate when they were attacked. Do you remember the setting? Remember the scud missiles were coming in? They were showing on the news kids with gas masks, things like that hunkering down. And that was the first time in Israel's history, short history, that they did not retaliate against them, but they let the, uh, the alliance that Bush had put together to retaliate against the attacks. That was so abnormal for Israel because usually, if you go back and study the Six-Day Wars, the different wars that happened, that when Israel was attacked from 48 all the way into the early 60s, whenever they were attacked, who did they depend upon to defend themselves? Themselves. And usually what happened every time? They won. They expanded their territories. They, were, they, they beat up their neighbors, and they were this wimpy little country that would come back and come back and come back. And then in every treaty, what was Israel forced to do? Give up a little bit of what they had won for land. Give up a little bit of what they had conquered when they were attacked. Well, all of a sudden in the, <coughs> in the 80s and 90s when things changed, <coughs> excuse me, with the Gulf Wars, they, they became more of the... <coughs> the passive participant in that war. And that was so unusual. But it lends towards the idea that they're going to rely upon somebody more, somebody else on the outside to defend them. That is very different. That fits into end times and what happens in that last period of time. There needs to be a growing globalism and a decline in nationalism. That is this idea for Antichrist to rise to power. There's got to be people around the world looking to somebody outside of themselves. Somebody with this, this idea of, okay, it's not, okay, it's not about make America great. It's about let's work with everybody else. Let's work with everybody else. And that globalism idea, uh, as opposed to nationalism, has to be a growing trend more and more and more and being focused on an international situation more than a national. Number 10, there has to be a push towards an acceptance of a cashless society and one world currency. Okay, what we mean by that is this. In that last seven years, there's going to be an economic system that everybody is going to be under where it's the sign 666 on your wrist, forehead, or on your hand or forehead for you to buy or sell, and you have to have that in order to sell. That means a cashless society. Well, I'm going to add to it. Let's, let's add to it. There needs to be technological advancements to have this done. Okay, let's put it together then. In order to have, to go and buy, and you're going to go and buy something, and you can't buy or sell, but you have to put, present this mark, 666. Is history established, is a technology established that would make it possible for you and I to go and buy things without paying money? Yes, no? Yes. Okay. Is it possible that we could have a system that instead of carrying around plastic in our wallets, we could, or, or using our phones, we could have something embedded that could go underneath the scan and do purchasing. Okay, go on your internet and you can find it. You can do it right now. You could find it real quickly right now. In Sweden, they're doing this on a regular basis. There is a technology company that uh, I was reading their article just on uh, this past uh, Wednesday. And it's a, it's a business in Wisconsin it's a technological firm, and they have 300, 350 employees. And they have a system that for getting in and out of their building and for their employees and for their employees dealing with pay wages and things like that, that they implant a small little size of a, of a, a piece of rice, uh, a device inside, and they can scan. 
and they can that gets them entry into the building, that gets them whatever. And the company is saying that they would even put in a number of the employees have done it with their children now, have taken what the company has offered as one of the benefits that they can have their children with this embedded device that will not bother, that if you want it taken out at any time, it'd be like, as the article went on, pulling out a sliver that you could even do at home. Okay, but it's that, it's, it's right there at the surface of the skin. Why would parents put a little device in their child's hand? Right? Right. If your child's lost, it's a security thing, right? To be able to keep track. What would be the benefit of having that device in your, in, in your records of your medical condition? Can you see any benefit of that being, being, um, wise to have, if, if you had an accident, you're traveling, you have an accident, you're taken to a hospital, and they don't know if you have an allergy to, yeah, whatever. If they had the, your medical history with something that you could scan that quickly, would that be beneficial? Yes. Uh, Folks, I'm not talking market bees. Just think, think aside from, from that. Can you see that as being beneficial? Can you see this as being beneficial so you don't lose your credit card? Yes. Can you see it being sold to the public at large? Yes, absolutely. We have the technology. <coughs> Excuse me. They've been doing this in Sweden for a number of years. And so the advance now in America, <coughs> the public perception is it's not popular right now. And when people try to present this, and some companies that have tried to present this in a marketplace outside of their own employees, they have had resistance. Why? Why in America would there be resistance to this? Invasion of privacy. Who's, who, who would we say is watching us all the time? Okay, and so that's the, that is right now in this articles that went on describing this, that is what they're working at is trying to change. It's not that we don't have the technology, it's just that in America there's going to be a, a, a reluctance because of Big Brother intruding into our privacy. And so that control factor, but the point is for this to happen, for, for the mark of the beast to take place, are we living in a time period that now we have the technology to do it? The answer is yes. Are we living in a time period where selling this to the general public, it would go over well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially now, put yourself, that mark of the beast comes when in the tribulation? Beginning, middle, or end? The middle. Okay, so for the first three and a half years, what are, if you were living there, okay, you're not, you, if you're born again, you won't. But let's say we lived in there, what are we seeing all around us? Death, chaos, stealing, robbery, every man for him. Okay, prices of food, astronomical. Can you see why we would say this is helpful? This would be helpful to protect us. So, you know, we live in a time period where this is like never before in history. Technological advancement, the Revelation 11 we talked about is when the whole world sees the two witnesses rise up and ascend into heaven. Well, what makes that possible today? That never was possible, you know, 50 years ago. Tele the, the whole communication system that we have. And so that's advancing it. Number 12. 
Okay, there has to be a rebuilding, a push for the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem. Now in that, in the middle of the tribulation, it says that Antichrist will go into the temple and establish himself as God. That has to mean that the temple will be rebuilt by the middle of the tribulation. Fair assessment? Okay, so when is that temple rebuilt? Sometime before that. Three and a half years before, ten years before, it doesn't say. It just says that by the middle of the tribulation there has to be a rebuilt temple. Okay, That means there has to be a movement that precedes that to get the temple rebuilt. Is there a push and a movement by conservative Jewish individuals to try to get a temple rebuilt? Yes. Okay, you can do your studies, you can go on where there's, there's groups that are claiming they are making the vessels, they are making the garments, they are breeding the animals to get everything ready for the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of the Jewish sacrifices. Some are claiming that, some have been proved to be bogus, others seem to be very legitimate. Overall though the point is there is a growing mindset among some of the conservative traditional Jews to get that temple rebuilt, which they have ever forgotten, but there seems to be concerted effort for that to be taking place. And, and they're in the land so they have the opportunity and you say, well, they have to get rid of the Dome of the Rock. Recent research is indicating that maybe the original temple wasn't where the Dome of the Rock was, but adjacent to it which is open area to the Jews and so that's all under discussion and debate. For people to accept someone like Antichrist, okay, to so readily and easily to say we want to follow this man. There has to be a mindset Okay, then the idea of there's so many calamities, there's so many issues, there's so many impossible situations that we want somebody who will give us the answers. Now are we living in a time period that the issues are getting insurmountable? That all of a sudden the energy issues, the financial issues, and then I'm going to add to it this idea that people will focus more on personality than they will on principles. They will elect somebody more not of what they, what they believe in, but how they have marketed themselves. Now there's always been that to a degree. Marketing has always been a part of the political agenda. We understand that. But is there a mindset now that people can be easily switched and swayed based upon something simple? Who is it? The barmaid who got elected to Congress? Has never held office before? And she says, God, she says, the public has sent me to, to her co quote this week, the, I've been elected to go in and change the three houses of legislation in Washington, D.C. And she's elected to it. Okay, You caught what she said wrong. How many houses of legislation are there? There's two. She thinks there's three. Okay, And she is one elected. But she got elected because she promised free stuff. The government should give, 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 because why should people pay for stuff when the government should take care of it? And I just go, when the government pays for it, we are paying for it. The government doesn't grow money by itself. It gets the money from us. I, I just, I just, just okay. It's just, yes, right? It's just, you think the government just has this, this unending income. Yeah, yeah really, really, it's, it's amazing. So, okay, now put those 13 things together, okay? 
and together they say to me that we're in that season. Now, I got, I got to tell you, honestly, when I was first saved in 1973 and first started, the first, first little bit of Bible study we did was the great, the great late planet Earth. Any of you ever see that? By, by uh, Tim LaHaye? Hal Lindsey, Hal Lindsey, thank you. Hal Lindsey did that one. And uh, so that was our first table. And we thought in 1973, there is no way we are going to see 1980. And then in the 80s, we thought there's no way we're going to see, he's got to come back before 1990. And then he has to come back before 2000. And he has to come back before, uh, yeah, 2012. Okay. He has to come back before 2018. Okay, our point is Paul thought the same thing, that he could come any day. And the way they would have interpreted a lot of the persecutions was they thought Antichrist was at hand because it was the emperors. That's the question. That's what they were dealing with. And they were thinking, well, this is Antichrist. Nero is Antichrist because he's after us. And so the interpretation, you know, you do within your vein of what you have. But again, I want to make this statement. Never before in history do we see all the different props lined up that fulfill all these prophecies so carefully and so, so effectively. Again, God could blow the whistle, call the curtain in, and change the props and be delaying everything for another you know, generation, two, three, four, whatever. But boy, it sure looks like we're in that final season. Everything that's stated about the latter days, it is happening right now. So what does that leave us with? That leaves us as getting ready. The next event in history is in Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. He talks about at the end of that tribulation period, there is a phenomenal text here that is talking about what happens. In Revelation 19, here we go, starting down with verse 11. He says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He that sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of, him, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, flesh of captains, mighty men, horses, them that sat upon them, the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was then taken, and with him the false prophet that brought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. 
until the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. I saw thrones. They that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ for... But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were done. This is the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on which the second death hath no power, that they shall be the priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. That whole event is dealing with the return of Christ. At the end of the tribulation, he's going to come back. He's going to remove Antichrist. He's going to take the false prophet and Satan. Get him out of the way, and he's going to finally establish his kingdom on earth that's going to last at a minimum of a thousand years. A glorious kingdom. We want to talk about this return of Jesus Christ. We have one minute to do the entire chapter. So we'll wait until next Sunday, okay?